episode 198 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Point. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, hi. My name is Alana Guadio. I'm originally from Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and I fly airplanes both for work and for fun, uh, upside down and uh, occasionally right side up. Aviation Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's intro might be shorter than normal. It is like 4 a.m. I'm getting ready for a trip. It is Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to everyone. But uh, my Thanksgiving is going to be spent in an FBO. It looks like sitting in Chicago. So not too pumped about that, but you know, it comes with the territory of the job. But today's podcast is with Alan Aguayo. Alan is such a cool story. I've been wanting to get him on for a while. He truly flies for love. I mean, he pretty much has his full-time, which is pretty much a part-time job, so he can keep doing what he loves most, and that's aerobatics and upset recovery to instruction. You can go to his website and check out what he does at aguayoaerosports.com. He is one of the, the coolest guys on Instagram, has such a great channel, just can really see how much he loves aviation, and as you'll see, he just flies his butt off a fly all the time. Whether he's home, whether he's on the road, he is always flying, and he truly does love it. Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, reviews and followers and subscribing and making sure all your friends are subscribed are huge for the show. It gets this podcast out there for everyone to see. Uh, if you don't want to do that, go check out Pilot to Pilot on Instagram and Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee in the game. But Aviation, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So any further ado, here's Alan Aguayo. Alan, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Uh, I actually pulled some G's this morning with a student before the uh, weather rolled in. And uh, now I'm here talking to you. So, so far, it's a good day. Weather, man. I don't want to talk about weather right now. It is literally about the snow. I know we, we met, I told you this in a text earlier, but I cannot believe that it's already time for snow to come back. I, I can't believe it either because I was in Chicago this, when was it, Monday? And Monday or Tuesday, and the weather seemed perfect, dude. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> We're going to have snow today <laughs> and snow, snow on Sunday. So let's go. Winter's here. There you go. I well, need snow in my life, so I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> you can have it. So come up come <laughs> up here in February. I'll take your Florida home. You can come live up here and we'll swap. You can have all the snow you'd ever want. Yeah, I know it's kind of brutal <laughs> up there, so yeah, it can we'll be. see. All right. Well, I am very interested in your story. Uh, you Just your lifestyle. It seems so cool. Like, I mean, you... It just, I get the vibe that you truly, truly, truly love aviation. Like, it seems like you're in a plane every single day, no matter what day it is, whether it's work or whether it is just for fun. I almost get the feeling if you had the opportunity to go fly upside down, you'd do so after a long day of flying to like decompress from that flying. So I'm very excited to have you on and kind of share your story about, about aviation. Yeah. So definitely I, sometimes there, there are weeks where I, I fly almost every day. Um, I'd say every day, really, either for work, for fun, or just, you know, flight instructing. So if the weather's good, I'm typically flying. And uh, it's, 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 it's good. It's great that I have that opportunity. 
Have you always been in aviation? Was there like a specific moment where you're looking back and you're like, that's when I knew I was going to be a pilot? You know, it, it all started like for most people, you know, when you're a kid, I, I didn't really have anyone in my family that was a pilot or is a pilot. So it wasn't really passed on to me. But, um, you know, as far as I can remember, when I was a kid, all my toys were airplanes. And that's kind of where it just all started, um, probably when I was three or four. So I, I knew back then that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to fly. So Did your parents know what they're doing when they're buying you these toys? Or are they just like, oh, you know, this, this plane's kind of cool. Maybe he'll like this. I don't know. And I really don't know why they bought me airplanes and, you know, airplanes, spaceships and all that. I originally wanted to be an astronaut. And I, you know, as I grew older, I figured out like, man, that's not gonna, that's not realistic. So I toned it down a bit. And then that's where the whole pilot thing came about. So when you're a young kid and you're playing with these toys, you kind of had the idea that you liked airplanes and maybe astronaut, maybe whatever it was. When did you actually go into an airplane and kind of take your first flight and not necessarily a commercial flight, your actual first flight behind the controls? So my, I'd say my first flight was in 2003 and, um, I was 16 back then, but, um, I got, I got the interest and the bug when I was like 14 or 15. And back then I was living in the Dominican Republic. So, you know, the whole flying and especially GA flying is not very uh, big over there. And aviation in general is just not that accessible, um, at least not back then. It's it's getting a little bit better now. But um, back then there wasn't like a reputable flight school down there that I could go and, and fly. Um, but I'd been bugging my parents about flying. And, um, you know, one day when I was like 15, I, I told my dad one last time and he's like, okay, fine. Um, we'll, we'll get you flying, but you're not going to be flying here in the Dominican Republic, which is where I grew up. I was born and raised and grew up there. Um, he told me that if I wanted to fly, it was, it was going to have to be in Culver, Indiana, which is a military, um, academy in Indiana. And, um, it's, it's kind of random, but it became like a family tradition to go there. Because my my dad and my uncle, his brother, they went back in the fifties um, for for the entire year, and then that kind of became a family tradition. A lot of my family members and cousins went there, and I ended up going actually when I was twelve. Um, but it wasn't the best experience for me because when you're that young, you don't actually go to the the actual academy. They put you on the woodcraft camp which is a bunch of cabins in the woods. And uh, I I did not want that. So, you know, I was 12 years old. Um, It was my first time ever away from home by myself. Um, I did know how to speak English pretty well, but it wasn't as fluent as I am now. So it was just a tough time. And I told myself, you know, I'm never going back to Culver ever again. And then... um, you know, fast forward a few years later, then my dad says, Hey, if you do want to fly, it's going to have to be in Culver. I said, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> Dang it. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I had no option really at that point, but, um, Culver had a very small aviation program. They had about three airplanes. It was a Cherokee, a warrior and a tri-pacer. And yeah, it was a very small uh, program, but it just gave me an opportunity to fly somewhere, you know? So, when I'm 16, I go there again, and it's 
honestly, it's a vastly different experience because now I'm actually in the civilization, really. There's buildings, there's barracks, uh, there's infrastructure. And, um, you know, I had a really good time. I went there specifically to fly. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to fly a whole lot. Um, I think I maybe got 10, 12 hours the whole summer while I was in Culver. Um, but there were a lot of other things to do there. So I, there were classes to take. There were extracurricular activities, um, sports. You know, I, I took some sailing as well, you name it. And um, because it's a military academy, everything is kind of based on rank. So um, I did pretty well that, that year. I got the highest rank you could get on your first year. And that kind of motivated me to go back. So I did go back the following year. Um, but it was really frustrating, man, because I was not able to fly at all for the rest of the year while I was in the Dominican. So I had to wait a whole year to go back to Culver and, and fly another, I don't know, 10 hours. Um, but the second year I got, you know, about another 10 hours, I got to solo. Um, and again, did very well in the academy that year, came back a third year, soloed again. And, um, you know, it was it was a great moment in my life because I actually ended up graduating with the highest rank out of the entire academy. So um, only one person in the, out of 1400 students could get that rank. And, and for me, that was a special moment because I was I was able to get that. And um, I think that and the recommendation letters I got from Culver helped me get into college, which by that point, I truly knew that it was something I wanted to do for a living. And that was aviation college, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I did apply to Embry-Riddle. It was the only um, school I applied to. And I luckily got in. Got <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's like my wife. My wife. a long shot. Yeah. My, my wife only applied to Ohio State. It's like only one school. It's like she knew she pretty much knew she'd get in. But it's like, why don't you like maybe a couple other schools, you know, like <laughs> you never know. That's yeah. Crazy. So I, I was considering, you know, Purdue and... Um, uh, North Dakota and all that, UND. But um, for some reason, I just ended up applying to one. That was Embry Riddle. And um, worked out. You so. know, got it. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah. So. so you graduated from the military school or military academy in Culver, and you only had what, like 20 hours, 30 hours? Did you get a rating from there? Or was it just kind of just flying with an instructor? No. So at, at that time, it was kind of more like flying for fun kind of deal. Um, Initially, I didn't know that it was something I wanted to do professionally. So um, it was just mainly for fun. I got to solo and uh, that was about it. So I got no, I, I didn't get my private out of it. Just about 30 some hours and three years. <laughs> so yeah, three years, I got 30 hours. And um, it was it was a very different kind of flying over there because it was just an uncontrolled airport. Um they had uh, the main runway was a grass strip, and then they had a very short paved runway. But we only pretty much used the the grass strip, and um, it was just all about having fun. You know, I didn't have to talk to anyone. We didn't have ATC to talk to. It was just flying around, doing some air work, coming back and landing, and just call it a day kind of deal. So um, nothing really structured, if you will. Yeah, that's cool because I feel like a lot of times when you, it's a very structured beginning, especially to flying. It's like you have, especially 141, obviously when you're going to Embry-Riddle, I'm sure it was a, a very different story, but it's very yeah, much like was, you do. That was actually a big problem for me yeah. because 
it was everything was just <laughs> vastly different, man. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Daytona's airspace, but it's very congested. It's busy. Um, and I've never had to talk to anyone before on the radio. So now I'm, I'm having to talk to, you know, get clearance, get ATIS. I'm like, what the hell is ATIS? What is this? Got to talk to another guy to let me go out. And he was like, and I just want to fly. Talk. Like, shut up. Just, I don't yeah, want to talk so, to you. And unfortunately, because of the volume there, um, the traffic volume, you do spend a lot of time on the ground and uh, not as much time as you want to in the air. So it just, it, it was very different. It just was a lot to get used to at first for me. So with you saying that, um, your expectations of Embry-Riddle, were they kind of different than you expected? Like when you actually had your first year under your belt there, were you a little bit disappointed with that because of that? Or was it easier for you to kind of adapt and just get used to it and be like, hey, this is what it is. I just got to figure it out and get used to it. Uh, that's a good question. So I, I knew what I was getting myself into, right? I knew how the training there was going to be. Um, I knew that it was structured and there was a lot of studying to do. There was a lot of procedures to deal with. Um, so I knew that before I went in. Um, but at the same time, I just missed the other kind of flying I did at Culver, um, if that makes sense. Um, that's mainly what I wanted to do. Just have fun flying. So how did you deal with that when you were at Embry? Did you just like kind of put up with it for those four years or when you're like, I can find somewhere else to fun to fly or are you looking for different opportunities, different ways to, to fly? Yeah. So funny story at Embry Riddle, every it's either every year or every semester. I can't remember. Uh, they have an activities fair where they get all the, um, you know, all the clubs, all the fraternities, sororities, organizations, they just kind of promote themselves to get more members. Um, and they had that on campus, you know, everyone had, they had their own booth and whatnot, and you could go up and ask questions. And if you were interested in joining a club, you would. And um, there was this club that caught my eye. It was called the Eagle Sport Aviation Club. And um, they had on display, they had three airplanes or three aircraft. They had a J3 Cub. They had a uh, Pitt Special, an SUB, and a uh, ASK-21, which is an aerobatic glider. And I was like, man, that looks fun. So I went up, I just asked a couple questions, you know, I was interested in it, but I never really, you know, pulled the trigger and joined. Um, I actually ended up joining like two years later. So they had another activities fair. Um, I went there again and just asked more questions and they said, Hey, listen, we're going to have like a pizza party after, um, why don't you just come and, uh, you know, just meet some of the members and you can ask even more questions. And I was like, yeah, you, you have me a pizza party. I'll, I'll go there. So I go and I meet one of the instructors um, and I kind of schedule an intro ride. And uh, that ride changed everything for me. Um, not going to lie. So the the goal and the vision I had as a professional pilot, you know, it, originally what I wanted to fly was the heavy metal stuff. Um, as a kid, some of the airplanes that I had as, as toys were tri-jets, um, kind of like a Mach 727 or, you know, MD-11 or whatnot. So I kind of had a, a fascination to fly a tri-jet or something like that, you know, later on in my career, which is kind of impossible to do nowadays. But it, it did shift. It shifted from wanting to do that to just wanting to fly aerobatics. Um, but it was just weird because that 
intro ride was was just very different than what I was used to doing. You know, you're you're, you're putting on a parachute, you're strapping in. You know, you got a five point harness, and I was you know strapped in, got in the airplane, and you're sitting in the front seat, and you're sitting really just right in front of or right behind the fuel tank. The fuel tank's literally in between your legs. You can smell the fuel. There's like barely any instruments. And I was like, what am I doing here, man? Like, I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> is this how I die? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But man, we took off. We did some maneuvers, uh, did the uh, the whole primary sequence and came back. And I was like, yeah, I'm sold. I'm, I'm joining the club. And uh, that's how everything kind of shifted to the aerobatic stuff instead of the you know, airline or cargo route. So when you started at Embry-Riddle, was your mindset, I'm going to be an airline pilot? Yeah. And then as you kind of went through this... Not necessarily, this, sorry, not necessarily an airline pilot, but just, you know, Professional fly. pilot for money, I guess. I don't know. Well, just my goal was to just fly the big jets, okay. you know, yeah. um, heavy metal stuff. Gotcha. And then as, sounds like very quickly, you realized that you mainly just like to do this because it's a lot of fun. Right, and you were looking for the fun ways of flying more so than the big jets. Pretty quickly, or I guess this would be two years after, right? Yeah, about. But the thing is that at the time, I didn't see it as a uh, career opportunity. Right, um, just seemed very unrealistic for me to make a living flying aerobatics. Um, and I, I had no idea, like, where, where do you start? You know, like, how do you, um, how do you start making money and then? And, and, doing this for a living. So I, at the same time, that's what I wanted to do. But I was also, you know, I'm, I'm already here at Embry-Riddle doing aeronautical science degree, doing flight training to be a professional pilot. So I kind of kept that mentality of, you know, still going to the airlines or flying cargo eventually. Um, but also looking for ways to somehow either do aerobatics for fun, um, just a little bit more often or as a, as a career somehow. And it's, it's very, it's just very weird how I ended up doing this that I'm doing now, to be honest. <laughs> well, my next question was going to be like, where do you start? How does one start making money in aerobatics? I'm guessing there's a ton of people flying and I consider them crazy because I'm not the type of person that just wants to go upside down. I just like nice, boring flights. <laughs> so give me yeah. a long, boring flight. But where do you start? How do you get into this industry and make money? Obviously, people know about like the bigger names and they've made a name for themselves and they have income. They have the ability to make it, but it seems like it's kind of very few that can really live off yeah. of that. <laughs> I know what you're saying. And to be completely honest with you, I've, I've spent more money in aerobatics than what I've made doing aerobatics. Um, not gonna lie. So it was a very long road um, to be where I'm at right now. It all started with the pits. Um, you know, shortly after I joined the club, I was able to compete the following year. So I joined the club in 2009, and then in 2010 I did my first competition. The thing was that you, because of insurance purposes and uh, club policy, you had to fly with a safety pilot all the time. So even at competitions, I had a guy in the back seat, um, just there for insurance purposes, right? So I um, throughout the years I started doing well. I competed in primary, which was my first uh, contest ever, and um, in that contest I, I managed to get somehow first place. 
So that even that motivated me even more to to you know keep doing it. Yeah, you're like I'm pretty good at this. All right. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 really good at this. You, I'll, I'm going to kick ass next year because I'm going to move up to a category and I'm going to kick ass. And I was so wrong. I I had my my butt kicked in <laughs> in sportsman because sportsman is one of the hardest categories in my opinion to do well at because typically. In that category, you have the most competitors, and most of those competitors have been doing it for a very long time. Um, so that was a reality check. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually not that good. So I started practicing more and then eventually started doing well and then moved up to intermediate. Um, and I did well in intermediate, but I, I had a guy in the back seat still. So I don't know if you're familiar with the pits, but it, the pits is it's a great airplane, but it's not the most capable aerobatic airplane out there. And especially when you add more weight and another guy in the back, you lose a lot of the performance. So I was kind of ready to just start flying it by myself. Yeah. Gotta get out of my plane. <laughs> yeah. So the problem was that in order for you to fly solo, um, I can't remember if it was an insurance requirement or a club requirement, but either way, there were two sets of requirements you had to meet. Um, and I had, by that point, I had everything. I had the uh, total time that you needed in that type. Um, I had the competition experience and a few other things, but the only thing I didn't have was a CFI certificate, which for whatever reason, the insurance company required you to have a CFI certificate to fly it solo. That's strange. Yeah. So that's kind of where it all started. I kind of like you, I, I just never really wanted to be a flight instructor. It was something that um, I just wasn't, I was not interested in doing. So I literally got my CFI certificate just to be able to fly that airplane solo. That was the only reason. And I, I had no intentions of becoming a flight instructor ever. So, so that's kind of how everything started. And um, now I'm flying this airplane solo. It's great. It's a night and day difference, uh, believe it or not, with just me in it. And um, started doing well as well. And, you know, some of the club members said, or some of the guys in the leadership side of the club said, hey, since you're a CFI now, why don't you just start teaching some of our members? And I'm like, well, sure, I can do that. Um, and believe it or not, uh, that was the first thing I, I, I taught aerobatics. Um, it wasn't primary, you know, private pilot stuff. It was aerobatics, which is a, a different path, if you will. Um, so that's kind of how it all started to develop. And um, that's mainly what I did. I did some table instructions in the Cub as well. And um, ironically, that experience I got flying at that club was what got me that job at Embry-Riddle doing the upset recovery stuff. So... It wasn't my experience at Embry-Riddle that got me the job. It was the experience that I got outside of Embry-Riddle flying, which is kind of ironic, funny. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, it's all about That's, who you know, right? You know? Yeah. Connections so, and who you know. So um, another funny story is that my friend, um, Andrea Luthi, he was managing the Upset Recovery Program back then. Uh, he was the one that said, hey, man, we need another CFI that can teach upset and tailwheel at Embry Riddle. Um, and they're gonna start a new hiring class in in a month, I think. The catch was that at Embry Riddle, 
in order to apply, you have to have a CFI and a CFII. Um, even though, even if you don't teach instrument, you have to have a CFII, which I didn't have. So I told him, hey, uh, I don't have a CFI, a CFII, and uh, there's only one month left. And he's like, well, figure it out. <laughs> so um, I went across the street to ATP. I told him, hey, I need a uh, double I, like as soon as possible. And guess how many days it took me to get my double I? Three. <laughs> <laughs> three days. I showed up three times in a week. And then the following week, I had my check read. And uh, I got my double I. I applied and uh, got hired at Riddle. That has well, to be the student. fastest CF double I check ride ever from Zoom. That was, that was horrible, man. Yeah. <laughs> What were what I were your nerves like going so into much, that? And I had to take the written before even starting. Oh my gosh! Uh, flight training there, so it was a lot of cramming. How do you even study? Because it sounds like you weren't really even flying instrument that much, unless there's other flying you're doing. So like you were pretty much going in there with just your instrument rating to go back on, and just had to study like crazy to to get it together and make it work. Yeah, you know, I had my instrument rating. I can't tell you how many. I, I don't think I've ever used it at that point. Um, I'm I'm a day VFR only pilot man. Um, it, it's like that till this day, pretty much. I I like my my good weather to fly. So it was just you know a lot of uh, studying, right? But a lot of a lot of it came back quickly. Um, and then you know how it is for the written. It's a lot of it is just you know cramming and uh, memorizing the answers and whatnot. But so so I did that, and I, I was I was able to you know, pull through and, and get it done. What was the timeline for this? Did you graduate in Riddle already? Were you still working in it? Were you still in school at Embry Riddle when this was going on? Um, that was after I graduated. So I graduated in 2011. Um, however, when I graduated, I had different plans. Um, my plan was actually to go down to South America and fly for an airline down there. Um, the problem was that as soon as I graduated, that airline reached their quota, like their limit on how many foreign pilots they could hire. So I was stuck with nowhere to go, really. Um, I had gone back home to the Dominican. I had a job offer there that I, I, I had to say no to because I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it. Um, it was one of those air ambulance on call 24-7 kind of deal. And um, I knew it wasn't going to last long doing that. And it was also a friend's uh, family company. So I was worried that I could burn some bridges if I did um, accept and then leave within a few months. So I pretty much had nowhere to go. And by that point, I knew that I, I wanted to stay in the United States and, and come back and, and figure out a way to get a job here. Um, and that's when it all started. because. I had I before all this happened, I already left and went back to the Dominican. So I, I came back just to get my double I and, and, and all that stuff. And that's when I got hired at Riddle. However, um, it's not like you can just come back to the States and stay. Uh, for me, because I'm a Dominican citizen, I need a visa or or you know, some sort of sponsorship. So the only way I could figure out to come back was, believe it or not, to do a second degree. And um, I, I, that was my only choice at the time, which I don't regret because um, I truly enjoyed that, that second degree. I did a degree in aerospace and occupational safety. 
And um, I also wanted a backup because there's not a whole lot you can do with an aeronautical science degree other than fly, to be honest. So like, what if I lost my medical man or what if uh, something happened? I just can't fly anymore. I, I need to have a backup. So it was not only a way of coming back, but also having a backup. And I think that degree has been very beneficial for me. So while I was doing that second degree, that's when I got hired at Riddle. Okay. So while you're doing the second degree and you were able to work and kind of study and stay in the States is when you got that degree or when you got the job. How long did you, how long were you in that role for? Was it just until you finished and you graduated? Because by that time, did you have to go back since you were technically there for school, not for that job? That's, that's also a good question. So I started that second degree in 2013. And uh, at that same time, that's when I got hired. And at that same time, my friend Andrea, he left um, to go somewhere else. And at the time, he was the upset recovery training manager. So I just went right into being the upset recovery training manager um, from the get-go. So I did that. Um, I graduated three years later um, in 2016. Um, but that's my, my, my student visa was up. So luckily... Um, Embry-Riddle was willing to sponsor me and they got me a work visa. So I got the work visa. And then after a certain time, it, it's, it depends on your country and your citizenship and a bunch of other stuff. But after a certain period of time, you can apply for the green card. So when that time came, I applied. And then years later, I got the green card and I was able to move on and do other things. So the whole time frame that I worked there was from 2013 until 2019. When so it was a very long time. When someone sponsors you, I mean, obviously I don't know this whole process, but when someone sponsors you like Embry-Riddle as an institution and you're working for them, do you feel like you owe them anything for like, do they make you feel like they, I'm not own you, but like are the reason you're there, you know, like without their support, you could not be in the United States. Is there any kind of like a weird relationship between the sponsor and the sponsor E, or is it pretty much just like, Hey, we really want you to work here. We're willing to sponsor you. Um, and you can leave whenever your green card or if like any other opportunity comes out, there's like no hard feelings. Yeah. So it's not really a weird situation. I actually feel very grateful that they gave me that opportunity. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be talking to you right now, probably. So, um, it, it, it it's like everything happens for a reason. Um, right now, and I hate saying this, but right now the airlines are just picking pilots out of flight school. You know, everyone's going, every CFI that gets their hours, they just go right to a, to an airline. And um, that's something that Embry-Riddle has been dealing with for a very long time. Um, the turnaround is very quick with instructors. So in a way for them to sponsor someone, uh, they know that person is going to stay way longer than the rest of the guys. So it's almost, it's like an investment for them in a way. Um, and it, it does work out for them, but I feel like, you know, I, I, I do owe them a lot for doing that because they, they just helped me out tremendously with it. And, um, believe it or not, um, I, I still truly enjoy instructing and I, I still work at Embry-Riddle as a temp. So whenever I have time off and they need help, I'm, I'm there helping them out That's awesome. as an instructor. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you are coming up and kind of like building your time. I feel like a lot of times the, the pilot feels like they owe something to the company and maybe they can stay longer than they should and they miss out on other opportunities. 
Um, what's your kind of viewpoint on that? Like, obviously you're super grateful for that opportunity to go fly and to build those hours, but maybe it's like you should leave now rather than staying another year just because you feel like you owe them. Cause in reality it's a business and they're going to fi- find someone else. Most likely if they pay a good enough wage to, to find that job and take it over and, and make the money. But there's always that in the back of your mind, you always feel grateful and you always feel like you owe them and you need to stay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, so with the, with the work visa, you are in a way limited to just working at one particular place. Um, so I, I can't transfer that. I couldn't transfer that work visa to somewhere else, if that makes sense. So, so in a way I was committed to that. And, um, I was also, you know, waiting on the green card, which who knows how long that, that would have, that, that took, you know, it's, it's just, it depends on so many things. It depends on the immigration rate of the country you're from. It depends where your application goes. It could go to somewhere in Texas and they might have a pile of applications, like, you know, 20 applications, or it might go to, I don't know, Illinois, and they might have 10,000 applications waiting there. Um, so it all varies a lot. And um, for me, it took a total of probably, I'd say four or five years from the time I got the work visa until I got the green card. Um, so I gave him, I gave him a lot, you know, a, a lot of a t- of my time and believe it or not, it, till this day, it's, it's been the most enjoyable and most rewarding uh, job I've ever had. It's like, I'm actually, I feel like I'm, I'm giving something to other, other students. Right. Um, so I really enjoy that, but, at the same time, it burned me out because it was uh, five days a week, sometimes six days a week, you know, 10 hours a day. Uh, I was there from 6 a.m. to 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And um, it just burns you out. Was so there, was there ever the a moment? Came, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, keep going. I just said when, the, when that green card came, um, I knew that I was eventually going to move on in my aviation career. Um, but I did stay for several months after that until the following year in February. That's when I got, got hired to fly freight. Was there ever a moment in the process of getting the green card where you just thought, maybe I'm not going to get it. Maybe this is just my life and where I'm going to be if I want to stay in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, the problem is that that work visa doesn't last forever either. So it does expire and you can't always renew it. So. I knew that if I didn't get the green card, it was just going to be, you know, a matter of when do I have to go back? What was, yeah. What was your, like, so obviously that was kind of a reality in your mind that I might have to go back. What was your game Correct. plan? Were you going to fly? Were you going to give up flying? Were you going to take up the family <laughs> I, I trade? No game plan. No game plan. Just going to go back and Nothing. see what happens. I was just, you know, going with the flow, hoping yeah. for the best. And, uh, you know, I'm with having my fingers crossed every day, just waiting. I'm glad it worked out, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm glad too. Yeah. So, um, but you know, even with a green card, that doesn't uh, the green card makes you a permanent resident, but there's no such thing as being here permanently. Um, the green card does expire too; it expires every ten years. And uh, yeah, so I still have I don't know uh, seven years left with it. So um, in that process, do you start all the way over and you just have to wait and see until someone looks at your application? It could be on the stack of 10,000 or does it go through a different application no, process? So from what I understand, it's a, it's a much uh, quicker and simpler process. 
Um, and most likely it will get renewed. Um, but you know, if, if, if you get arrested, if you get DUIs, if you don't pay taxes, you know, if you do stuff like that, that's when you don't get the green renewed. Yeah. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. While not all financial advisory firms are the same, there are hundreds of thousands of advisors across the U.S. with cookie-cutter approaches to financial planning. That's why RAA's approach to financial services is exclusively built around the needs, concerns, and desires of the airline community. You see, RAA believes that pilots deserve an airline-specialized team who understands that you have a unique set of benefits, risks, and timelines associated with your career, and that your financial plan must take into consideration where you are today your goals for the future, and the many challenges that you'll face during your career that could affect your financial life and security. Because whether you're just entering the airline industry or nearing your final flight, the team at RAA is there to support your journey from takeoff to touchdown. Learn more about how RAA addresses the unique financial challenges pilots face at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. When you were, so you get the green card and you kind of see uh, the writing on, your, on the wall at your time at Embry-Riddle. What were your options? You said you got hired at freight, but were you thinking regional freight? Kind of, did you have everything in mind and applied to them all? Or did you have a special track that you wanted to do? Because I know in the back of your mind, all you really want to do is fly acrobatic. So what was kind of your mindset and your goal to make it happen where you could fly acrobatic as much as possible? Um, so at that point, I just kind of saw it as a, almost like an unrealistic goal, really. Um, and I kind of accepted the fact that it was going to be a, mostly a, uh, a fun thing to fly aerobatics for fun and not as a career. Um, because I didn't know, like, other than Embry-Riddle, where I taught upset recovery, I don't know where else could I do that if I did leave, you know? Um, the funny part, the, the funny thing is that as soon as I left Embry-Riddle, uh, believe it or not, they shut down the program. So. The, the largest aviation university in the world doesn't have an upset recovery program right now, um, which is kind of hard to believe. But um, there wasn't. So we were kind of like the black sheep of all the aviation programs. Like management never liked us. You know, the uh, chief pilot didn't really like the operation. It's because of the liability and because the airplane was different than every other airplane on the fleet. Right. Um so right before I left, I was actually the only person that was able to teach it. So that's kind of when they said, you know what, he's leaving. We don't want to deal with this airplane or this program anymore. Let's just kind of, uh, you know, cancel it. And um, at that point, I kind of saw an opportunity. I saw like, I thought, hey, why don't I just pretty much pick up what I put down and start my own aerobatic and upset recovery program? Um, and I thought that was a great idea because after I left, I kept getting, you know, messages and, um, and, and emails from Embry-Riddle students asking me, you know, where to do that. And there's like no one in the immediate area that can do that right now. So at the time it was just not doable or feasible for me to do that. Um, and then that's when I went to, I got hired, I got hired at Southern Air and um, started flying freight right after I was done at Riddle. 
what was your mindset or what was your uh, experience flying freight? Was it, uh, <laughs> I've flown freight, so I'm laughing just because I'm thinking about like me being excited about having the opportunity to build my time and super grateful. And then like a year in being like, holy smokes, this job is crazy. <laughs> so it was one of those things that, I, again, I wasn't even planning on doing. Um, I was actually trying to find options uh, away from going to the regional or a regional, right? And um, I saw, I don't know where, I saw an ad um, probably online somewhere about Southern Air hiring. um, And they had the minimums listed and I had all the minimums except an ATP. So I was, because I was teaching mainly upset recovery, I didn't have a whole lot of cross-country time. Um, however, I was also teaching multi and the and the twin star, and we did do quite a bit of cross country time, in in the twin star, but it was mainly like ninety percent decathlon flying and then ten percent twin star. So I figured out a way of dropping some of the decathlon flights and picking up more um, twin star flights and doing cross countries until I got what was it five hundred hours of cross country that you needed for an ATP or restricted ATP. Um, so that was kind of one of those things, just like the double eye that I just got my ATP right away on my own without going to a regional. I just got it on my own just to apply to Southern air. And, um, I did that. I applied and got an interview and got hired. What were you flying? A 737. Holy smokes. (laughs) How much time did you have? (laughs) Um, so I had, I had no turbine time. You know, I, I had flown a, uh, uh, a C90 for like six hours on the right seat, just swinging the gear, which I didn't really consider it as, as turbine experience, but I didn't even bother putting that on my resume. But, um, I had, uh, probably a little over 3000 hours by that point and, um, no turbine time. And I, I, I thought it was going to be a long shot, but I, they called me for an interview and, um, I did the interview, went to Cincinnati and, uh, the next day, they, or actually that same day, they told me that I was hired. So I was like, whoa. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm literally, I was literally going from flying a decathlon to flying a 737 overnight, um, which I thought it was kind of hilarious. But yeah, that was, it, it was not what I was planning on doing, but it was just an opportunity I saw to gain some experience. And, um, you know, who knew? Maybe it would have been a long term thing for me. But I later found out that it was just uh, very difficult for me to do Um, the whole night flying and the whole being away from home that long uh, just became very difficult. Yeah, flying freight is is a lot. I mean, I don't know how Southern Air works, but when we were flying freight, it was pretty much on call all the time. You had 10 hours off and that's it. And they could call you whenever they wanted after 10 hours and get you to fly. And it was your responsibility to be where you were. Uh, I don't know. You're kind of like the 121 freight world with uh, Southern Air, possibly. I, I believe. Yeah. So. so you didn't do 121 freight. Oh. Did you? No. Did you? Do oh no, freight? I did not do 121 freight. So I only okay. had 91 135 freight. Okay. So Southern Air was one or is 121. That's work. Yeah. Um. So we we did kind of have a bidding system, just like the the airlines every month. Um. But I, the schedule is a little bit different. So you're gone for 17 days straight and um, you're home for 12. So I kind of, what my focus was like, hey, I'm going to be home for 12 days straight. That's awesome. 
You know, I really didn't think about being home or being away from home for 17 days straight. Um, and then what they don't tell you is that they can extend you up to 20 days, which happened a couple of times. So I was gone for 20 days straight, a few months. And um, doing, doing 20 days straight of night flying, of backside of the clock flying, got to me. Um, it was just, I, I thought that I was going to be able to adapt to that, but I was, I was very wrong. So what was, was your mindset? Wrong. Like when you realize you're in a place that you doesn't work for your lifestyle, like, yeah, you could probably see yourself a career there, but you'd have to sacrifice so much and it's not truly who you are. What was your, were you, I need to get out of this as soon as possible. Is it, I need to kind of put my time in and be respectful and then leave. Or what was, I guess, what was your mindset on it and what, how did you deal with that? So I wanted to be, you know, put my time in, uh, be respectful about it and, you know, just, just try to get used to it. So I was, I was convinced that I was going to be able to get used to it. And, um, when I saw that it was, I was just struggling and I was, you know, tired a lot. And even when I was home, I was tired because it would take several days to get back on track. Um, even though we didn't do like the whole, you know, long haul international stuff it's still you know it it takes a beating on your body at least for me so when i when i realized that uh that wasn't going to work out for me um i figured you know why you know what i just this is not for me i I, i'm probably would be best if if i don't stay around so so did you apply to a a ton of uh, different jobs or did you specifically apply to jobs that reached more of the lifestyle you wanted? Because now you know, now you know that there's a certain type of flying that you don't necessarily want, not flying, but the lifestyle they don't want. So were you kind of open to anything or were you more limited based on what you saw and now realize what you want out of flying? Again, Justin, I had no plan. <laughs> I, I love I it. I literally, I resigned without having a backup plan. Um, so there were a couple months where I was, you know, unemployed. Um, I had some other income that did help and I did some flight instructing on the side during that time. Um, it, it was just obviously not enough. So I had to look for options and, you know, not even looking for one. Someone told me about Delta private jets and, um, I, I had known about Delta private jets, but I wasn't really interested in doing corporate stuff. Um, but I was, I had an open mind about what really um pulled me in was the fact that they offered that part-time schedule the eight on 20 off um which i thought yes that is what i need because during the time i was at southern i was already planning on starting my own aerobatic and upset recovery program so i said to myself you know if i if i can fly a jet for eight days out of the month that'll give me enough time to do the rest of the aerobatic stuff i want to do um so I applied. That was the uh, only other place I applied, got an interview and also got hired, um, which was great. So uh, I, had a, I had a fly, I think it was a minimum of 100 hours in type before I could go part-time. And um, I got the time and um, I was able to go part-time, but I decided to stay full-time a little bit longer because I was just not ready yet at that very moment to start the the UPSA recovery program that I wanted to do. Uh, however, during that process, we were merging with wheels up. So the chief pilot at the time, he knew that I, I wanted to go part-time. So he told, he suggested, Hey, 
you might want to go part-time now, even though you don't want to, because who knows what's going to happen with the merger. That part-time schedule might go away, um, which it did actually. So I got, I went part-time right before the whole merger thing happened. Um, and Wheels Up does not offer that schedule. So I was kind of grandfathered in with that schedule. Um, and now being part-time with Wheels Up during that transition, that's when everything started with you know, acquiring the decathlon and, and starting to fly with students, which happened in uh, May of this year. I didn't realize this was all so like fresh. I, I For some reason in my mind, I thought that you were at Delta Private Jets for a while and you were kind of like doing everything, all this for a while. I didn't realize this is kind of like a kind of a fresh thing that's happened. No, yeah, it's kind of fresh. So I got hired at uh, Delta Private Jets. Um, what was it? January of uh, 2020. Yeah. Oh, right wow. before COVID happened. Perfect time to be hired. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because um, as soon as I got, I finished OE and started flying, that's when like everything just dropped. Like we weren't flying. Uh, they put everyone on a uh, reduced schedule with a reduced pay. And, um, you know, we weren't flying. But within a month, everything just picked up and it just skyrocketed. And we were flying a lot. It was just yeah. funny how just it went down and then just skyrocketed up. Yeah, it, it went down a lot for uh, for us too. Um, similar, work in a similar field, the fractional field, uh, the right. kind of that lifestyle. But it did. It came. We were very lucky in the fact that it came back pretty quick. And it's not to say those that one month that you're talking about. I mean, it was like historically low. It was like no flights and the mindset that everyone had the last year of just like who knew what was going to happen to any company. Like we just literally had no idea who was going to make it, what was not going to make it, if anyone was going to go under, not go under, be furloughed or not be furloughed. And luckily, yeah, we were very grateful yeah. that more people eventually started to want to fly private. And I'm very very thankful for that. I feel like the uh, the airline guys, they were terrified. Um, they did not know what was going to happen. And, um, you know, I think they got a good deal out of it for the most part. You know, um, they, they kept their jobs. A lot of them, you know, got paid without having to go to work, which is nice. Yeah, you probably um, would have been all about that, right? You're like, hey, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? So, um, and now look at them. They're like working a lot. Like, they're flying on every, I think everyone right now is just flying nonstop, regardless of what operation you're doing. What was your mindset during that? When like you got hired, all the flying stopped. Did you think like, holy smokes, I'm not going to be able to make any money. Like, did you kind of, were you defeated at all in the fact of maybe this isn't going to happen or were you more fired up than ever to like, make sure you could get your own business up and running something that you could have a little bit more control over? Yeah. So I, in a way, I was fired up. I was. I wanted to get things going. Um, I was a little worried at first too because they told us that this reduced schedule with the reduced pay was going to last 120 days, and um, not even not even 60 days in, probably not even 30 days in, it just went back to normal. Um, so that period of being worried didn't last long, uh, thankfully. And um, it's just everything went back to normal. I actually just started flying more at, at the company, which is obviously a good thing. It's, uh, it gives you a sense of uh, security in a way. Yeah. Did you have any re reservations? Maybe not reservations isn't the best word, but did you have any kind of uh, opinions about the fractional world or the private 
world. Because I mean, previously you kind of said when you first started, you wanted to fly big airplanes and then you found your love for acrobatics or aerobatics. I keep saying acrobatics, aerobatics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You found your love for that and you realized what you really wanted to do and you knew you needed to make money. And I'm guessing in your mind, it was still, well, I'm going to go fly big metal. And now you find yourself flying small planes. You find, find yourself on the corporate side. Did you kind of have any hesitations about it? Um, or were you just willing to do whatever it took to fulfill the dream of having your own school or compete or anything like that? You know, I, I did a lot of thinking about that. And um, at the end of the day, for me, it, it's, it's more about the quality of life than whatever equipment I'm flying. Um, I learned to not really care about what kind of airplane I'm flying as long as it provides you know, stable pay and a good quality of life. And um, that's kind of what I realized. So if, if you're going to pay me a million dollars to fly a triple seven and I have to work every day of the month, you know, I, I'll say no to that right away. But if you're going to give me 20 days off and pay me a, a little bit less, then I, I'm totally okay with that. And that's kind of what I've learned. I was say, what else have you learned from the actual like fractional side from someone that really loved big jets? Like, is it uh, everything you thought it'd be? Is it cowboys, or have you found it to be more of a safety culture and uh, a little bit better than you thought it was going to be? Uh, the one thirty-five side. Yeah. So I really like it because you 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 have to do a lot of non-pilot duties, if you know what I mean. Um, it's not just flying the airplane. You actually have to do a lot of other things. And for me, it feels like it's every day. It's an adventure. Like you show up to the airplane thinking you're going to New York. And by the time you get to the airplane, you get an email saying, no, you're going to go to Denver now. Um, it just keeps the job interesting. We, we don't go to the same places back and forth. I mean, we, there are airports we go to more than others. Right. But, um, it's just, it's, it's weird. It, this job takes me to some random places in the middle of nowhere, which can be, you know, very appealing sometimes. And, um, I just think to myself, like, what the hell am I doing here right now? This is just so random. Uh, but again, it does keep the job very interesting. And I do like that. For example, uh, we were, uh, down in Tampa, I think it was, uh, last Sunday or Monday. And, um, we 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 stayed with the airplane for a day and then they figured out they weren't going to fix it on time so they flew us to um midway to get a car to drive to south bend to pick up another car or another airplane um which you know it's it's kind of like oh i gotta do that but at the same time it it just keeps it interesting and it keeps it fun i always feel like i'm going on an adventure when i'm working here so um i do like that that is uh, the truth. This is an adventure. Yeah. 100%. And then, you know, to be honest, every everything everywhere you go, it's going to have pros. It's going to have cons. It just it, it all depends on what you're willing to deal with and what you like. At the end of the day, I think. So, um, yeah, I think fractional, kind of like our side of the industry, is really going to have kind of uh, is going to take off. I mean, I hate for the pun, but like there's a lot of movement <laughs> going to be coming here eventually, and there's going to be a big need for pilots, and the flying's not going to stop. There is going to be yeah, so much flying and they're in a really good spot to, to even try to get some airline guys away. And I think pay is only going to continue to get better for everyone in our industry. And it's just going to continue to, to improve lifestyle and everything. I think they're just figuring out, right? You got to remember airlines have been 
making these agreements are way longer than fractional companies have. Fractional is yeah. still a very young thing and they're learning and they're getting better contracts. They're figuring everything out. And I think it's really going to pop off and be, has the potential to be one of the premier jobs in aviation, if it's not already, depending on who you are. Right. And you know that all these airline guys that retire and they want to keep flying, where do they go? You know, they go to 135s that allow you to be a little bit older and still fly. Um, so we got a lot of retired airline guys that work for or work at our company. And um, some of them are part, a lot of them are part time, which is great, you know, because they might not want to fly a full time schedule. And um, like I said before, uh, Wheels Up was not offering that schedule, uh, but now they are. They have like, I don't know, six different schedule options, which is great for whatever kind of, you know, lifestyle you have. It, um, it, it will fit your lifestyle. So tell me more about, um, buying your airplane and getting the school up and going. What's, what's your goal? Uh, eventually, would you want to make enough money that this is your sole form of employment? Or are you happy with being able to fly the jets? I know before we talked, sometimes <laughs> being in a hotel every single night isn't the best thing and, and quality of life really matters. If you can build this company uh, to, to give you the quality of life and to be able to live off of it, is this something you would solely do? Or do you think you'll always rely on having some other form of employment? Um, it- Probably won't be my my sole source of income or employment, to be honest. Um, I don't see this. I, I want to make it grow, you know, ex- expand the uh, the company and the brand, if you will. But um, at the end of the day, I want to keep it as a small operation. Um, I don't. I'm not looking to have employees. I'm not looking to have other instructors um, involved. I there's something that I just want to do myself. Um, and I think uh, I, I truly enjoy doing that. So I will always have a separate source of income other than that. Um, but as far as uh, staying within the aerobatic world, eventually uh, I like the idea of possibly doing air shows in the future. How does one just start doing air shows? <laughs> uh, that's a tough one too. So um, it's about knowing people mainly. Um, it's about having a good reputation um, in aerobatics, you know, when you're, when you compete, you build this, uh, you know, uh, what I want to, what did I say? This discipline, um, to keep you safe and to keep you competent as a, as a pilot. Uh, I've seen some people just wanting to go and do air shows without having those, you know, that basic skills and the basic fundamentals. So I think you do gain a lot of discipline doing the, uh, competition aerobatics. And it definitely helps. So the other thing you got to get is uh, your your waivers. So there are different waivers, um, different altitude waivers. And technically, the first one you get is the 800-foot waiver. So you would have to get that through an ACE. Um, and the whole thing is called a, a SAC card, which is a statement of aerobatic competency. And you get that. And then with that, you're able to do air shows. As far as getting hired to do air shows, that's a different story. That's where you need to have uh, contacts, for sure. Gotcha. So it's just kind of like aviation, the, the people you know and, and the connections you make uh, and kind of being your own CEO of your career and promoting yourself to people and always being nice to people because you never know who you are need to count on and just kind of stays true throughout all of the industry. Exactly. And, and the other thing is that, you know, Aviation, as you know, aviation is a very small community, um, but the aerobatic community is even smaller. So everyone's going to know who you are. Um, if you do, you know, stupid things, people are going to know. 
that you did them. Um, well, if you're, you know, if you're a very respectful person and you fly safe, people also know that. So it's, it's one of those things you got to be careful and you got to, you know, choose wisely what, what, what to do in front of other people. For someone who's, be, on, uh, for someone who's on the outside of uh, aerobatics and doesn't really have a good understanding of it, not even necessarily talking about myself, but just someone in general, maybe someone that's hesitant to go upside down is afraid to do that. How do you treat them as a student or how do you tell them the importance of learning how to do this? Because upset recovery is huge. I mean, the, if anyone could get in there, almost every flight school should have some sort of upset recovery that is further than what they actually do because you never know the situation you could find yourself in and just having the idea or having the ability to keep your cool and to be able to not harshly react and make a bad situation worse by having this training can really help you. So how do you go about getting new students or telling people like, hey, like, this is not like as scary as you think it is. This is more to help you in the future in case you find yourself in a situation you need this. Right. So um, there's always, in my, in my experience, I, I've had two different you know, types of uh, students or, or people that I fly with. The ones that really enjoy it and the ones that really hate it. Um, I've never seen any, I've never dealt with anyone that's kind of in between like, ah, yeah, this is kind of like, okay, but I don't know if I want to do it or not. It's either they really like it or they don't. Um, the way I approach it is, for example, spin training, right? You're, you're, you've been doing stalls, power on stalls, power off stalls since the very beginning. And a spin is essentially a stall. You have to stall to spin no matter what. That's the main ingredient. All you're doing is just aggravating it a little bit more. So if you start by saying that, they kind of understand the concept of it. And it's it's a little bit easier to to get get their feet wet as far as you know spins and whatnot. The other thing is that I like to brief thoroughly and um, on the ground explain what's going to happen. What are we doing before we actually go up? So my philosophy is that all the all the learning occurs on the ground, and then what we do in the air is just practicing what we learned. You don't want to be teaching or showing students new things in the air without them knowing what to expect, if that makes sense. So, you know, a lot of people just, they come and they want to do intro rides. I, I did a lot of intro rides when I was at the club, at the Eagle Sport Aviation Club. And um, you kind of ask them like, hey, what do you want to do? Are you okay if I do this? I'm going to show you this real quick. If you don't like it, we don't have to do it again. Um, things like that. And then you can kind of get a feel for what they want and what they're able to, to handle. And then just, you know, keep kicking it up a notch if, if, if they're up for it. Um, when they get quiet, that's when you know that they're not doing so well. You've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm always every 30 seconds I'm asking, are you okay? Are you okay? If you're not talking to me, uh, you know, let's consider going back. <laughs> Would you say your experiences with new people when showing them uh, aerobatics would you say most of them are good or would you say it's like 50-50, kind of like you mentioned about their hesitancy? But once you get them in the plane, would you say most of them are very happy and very excited versus the people that are like getting ready to throw up or hate their life? I'd say 95% enjoy it. They truly enjoy it. Um, a lot of times uh, the people that don't truly enjoy it are not pilots because we, you know, we've done intro rides for non-pilot people too, just like a thrill ride kind of deal. Um, and they've never even been in a small airplane before. So now you're putting them in, in a small airplane, strapping, putting a parachute on, strapping them in and going upside down. You know, it's, it's sensory overload. 
Um, but I think, you know, at least 95% of the people I fly with, they, they truly enjoy it. And they, they also benefit tremendously from it. So talking to you is very interesting because there's like two mindsets in aviation, I feel like, especially people that want to make a career in this. Uh, a lot of people want that seniority number. They want to make as much money as possible. And maybe they're willing to sacrifice quality of life to get the, the money and quality of life that comes being a major airline captain and being 64 years old, flying a 787 one-legged day for one time every month. And then the other side is more you, where you see... You're not willing to sacrifice, not necessarily willing to sacrifice, but you want different things. You want the quality of life now. You're willing to to let the pay go and live the life that you want to live. For someone that's in the middle right now, someone that's kind of torn, they're listening to this like, oh my gosh, it would be awesome to do an 8 and 20. Uh, I'm not necessarily worried about the pay, but they're also torn about, I want to fly 787 one day, that kind of thing. What's your recommendation for someone to find their own in this community to kind of to figure it out on their own, to, to make that decision right now if they want to chase the pay or if they want to chase having a good quality life all the time? I think at the end of the day, it's based on your lifestyle and what fits your lifestyle. Um, some people, you know, they, they, they go for the money and that's all they care about. And some people, they prefer the quality of life. Um, I like to try and find a, like a happy medium, if you will, where I can get a little bit of both, both worlds, if you will. Um, I can tell you one thing. The thing for me is that my career goals have, they're constantly changing, I guess, throughout the years. Um, and yes, I do have a destination in mind, maybe, but I'm more about the journey. That's my career goal. I want to be able to do all these things while I'm young and while I can. As far as aviation goes, I want to be exposed to aviation as much as I can because I don't want to go to a major or, or anywhere else right now and then, you know, stay there for the rest of my life as, as a pilot and then look back and say, hey, man, like I should have done all these things when I was younger. Like I don't want to regret those things. You know what I'm saying? So if I'm able to do like, again, I want to there's. I want to fly in Alaska a couple of summers, you know, do some bush flying there at some point in my life. I want to do that. If I was to work in an airline right now and uh, build a seniority, it would be very difficult for me to just quit and go fly in Alaska uh, for a couple of summers just to get that out of the way, you know. But for someone that's still weighing it out, like they're trying to figure out what to do. I think the best thing to do is just get in touch with people that do 135. 91, 121, either airline or cargo, and just talk to them and see what they like and what they don't like about it. Um, preferably, you know, honest people that will tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly um, about where they work. And I think that will give you enough information, enough data to come up with, you know, your own conclusion and, and make, a, make a choice of where to go and what to do as a career. I completely agree. Uh, yeah, it's something that everyone's got to figure out on their own and it's okay to have your, your end goals change over time. It's like when I started, I wanted to be an airline pilot, but I took my experiences of the flying that I was doing and I realized that maybe that's not the lifestyle I actually wanted. I hate commuting. Yeah. I hate the idea of commuting. And so now I am where I am now based on decisions I've made on my experiences of building time and making this career kind of happen. Um, yeah. it's different for everyone and everyone, when you're 65 and you look back on your career, everyone's going to be looking back differently and thinking, man, I should have done that or should not have done that. But it's mm -hmm. all about just trying to make the best out of everything and make the best decision that you can in the moment. 
Right. And, you know, I, I don't want to don't want to sound like I'm opposed to going to the airlines. It's, I'm not completely opposed to it. I'm actually open to it. And believe it or not, that's something I might want to do later on in my career. I know that it's all about seniority. So the sooner you get in, the better. Um, but I, again, I, I think I care more about the things I want to do in, in life and in aviation before I just get to that point. Which is awesome. So, it's, it's refreshing to kind of hear that because I, I love that you were exposed to aviation as fun right away. And I think that's important. I think aviation should be fun right away. There's a lot of people that get exposed to it and it's just a grind right away. And aviation is a grind, but I think it's important to show the fun in the beginning so everyone knows that this is fun. Because when you're in the grind, you look back on the fun times and you're like, hey, I remember I still love this. I still like to fly. I yeah. still enjoy this. So I think the fun is very, very important. And I I don't want to say for sure, but these 141 schools and some of the 61 schools might not necessarily be exposing a lot of people to this fun side of aviation. No, they, unfortunately, you know, you're, you're going to 140, even a part 61 school, it doesn't matter where you go to, you're, you're going there for a purpose and that's for you to be a professional pilot. So uh, for most people, at least. So you, you have to understand that it's not always going to be fun. There's procedures, checklists, flows, all these things that you're going to have to know um, in order to get there. So my, my advice, you know, if, if you have the time and if you're able to fly outside of your flight school and do other things like, you know, fly gliders or aerobatics or get a seaplane rating and things like that, I, I strongly encourage that. Um, because that, that was something I was able to do. I was able to fly outside of Embry-Riddle while I was doing my training there. So I got a little bit of both worlds. I got the professional um, aspect of flying, and then I got the fun side of flying as well. Yeah, it's important. It very much is. It can help with the burnout just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but there's always as, burnout as in aviation. As, be, yeah. as fun as it may be, it's also, it's kind of terrifying, really, because, you know, just like that, you can one day lose your medical and not fly ever again, yeah. you know? So, I mean, not even just lose your medical. It could be some situation where uh, your whatever, airline goes yeah. under from, from a virus or something drastic happens like September 11th and maybe you get furloughed or maybe you get fired and you got to find something else and your identity has been a pilot this whole time. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting. So for me, you know, it's, it's kind of like the only thing I know how to do well is fly. <laughs> yeah. So if it's, and it's the thing I truly enjoy doing the most. Um, so it's just the, the, just the thought of taking that away from me is just terrifying. Um, so I, I try not to think about that, but at the same time, that's another reason why I want to do all these things in my life now that I can is so that I don't, you know, if it does happen one day, is there's going to be a day where I'm just not going to be able to fly. Right. Um, I'll look back and say, man, I'm, I'm glad I did all that stuff. Yep. And hopefully you're making that decision and you're not forced to make that decision for other reasons. Correct. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, that's important stuff to talk about and that's like a deep, deep subject. I don't think I'm qualified to necessarily talk about that, yeah. but like it, so, it, it's for everyone. Like everyone identifies as a pilot, that's a pilot and that's what they're good at. And then when they, that's taken away from you, you are kind of confused and it's square one again. Yeah. So, you know, flying, um, particularly aerobatics is, it's my passion. Um, but believe it or not, my other passion is, is safety. So with the whole upset recovery thing, I can combine the aerobatics with safety because you are teaching people how to be a, a more confident, um, pilot, a safer pilot, if you will, 
by, by doing a, a course like that. And um, I'm glad I got that second degree in safety because that would be my backup in case something happens. Yeah, backups are huge. And I've talked about this on other podcasts. Like everyone says you need a backup, but it's very hard to figure out what your backup is. <laughs> and a backup means different things for other people. But yeah, be always be kind of bettering yourself. Use that time off that you were awarded with aviation, whether it's seven days, whether it's five days. Uh, it's very different than every every other industry where you can truly be off and not think about anything and you can do whatever you want. You can further your life, you can travel, but think about what would make you happy if anything was taken away and just go with it. Absolutely. Um, even some students, I, I, I have some students that ask me about whether or not they should get their CFI certificate. Um, they say, you know, I don't want to be a CFI. Uh, I want to see if I can find other ways of getting the hours, which is completely fine. But what I ask them is, does it hurt you to get it though? Doesn't mean you have to be a CFI, but if you're able to get the certificate, get it. Because if you become a professional pilot one day and you get furloughed or whatever, at least you have a backup. You can still fly and get paid to fly because you have your CFI certificate. So it's just another option that you have. Very true. And I should probably yeah. stop telling people that I never wanted to be a CFI. <laughs> I feel Listen, like that doesn't I, help. I never but... wanted to be a CFI either, man. <laughs> yeah. I told you why I got my CFI certificate. Yeah. And um, it's just funny how I ended up doing what I do. I'm, I, I teach pretty much full time now. That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. So yeah, so if you don't yeah. want to be a CFI, there is a situation where you can still get it and enjoy it and want to be one. Yeah, but it, it's just funny to think about it because my life went pretty much full circle. So I went from instructing at Embry-Riddle to flying a 737. Then I went down to flying a corporate jet, an XL, which is a smaller airplane. Then now I'm flying a beach jet, which is an even smaller airplane. And now I'm back to Embry-Riddle teaching as a temp. That is really funny. <laughs> so it's just, it's just kind of weird how, how life goes, but I, I wouldn't change a thing, man. I love it. I would not. I love yeah. it. That's important to feel that way. So that's good. All right, man, yeah. I have some uh, rapid fire questions for you. So these questions oh, are just going to be a very quick questions and don't explain any answer. Just say whatever comes to your mind first. Oh boy. All right. You ready? Okay. Uh, no, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite airplane ever made? Favorite airplane ever made? Piper Cub. What's your favorite corporate jet? Maybe not one that you've flown, but just one that you've seen. Um... I'd say the uh, the 737 BBJ, something I've always wanted to fly. What about an airliner? So if you could choose one airliner that kind of piques your interest to fly or just looks really cool, what would it be? L-1011. Ugliest airplane you've ever seen in your life? Uh, the Latitude. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Um, I don't know. The ugliest airplane I've seen... Uh, which is one of the coolest airplanes I've flown is the AirCam. All right. Why are Pit yeah. Vipers the ugliest sunglasses in the world? I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> What's something you wish you knew before you become a pilot? Something I wish I knew before I became a pilot? Um, how long it would take to get where I wanted to get. <laughs> That's facts. Yeah. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? They could still be alive or they could be alive or they could have passed on. Oof. Um, not necessarily aviation. Well, I guess aviation industry, but uh, I would have liked to uh, have met John Glenn. That'd be cool. He spoke to my class at Ohio State, like oh, really? two years before he died. It was right. I don't remember exactly before he died, but it was um, 
when NASA decided to get rid of the space shuttle or kind of wind down that program. And he was pissed. And it was like 45 minutes <laughs> yeah. of him just like screaming, <laughs> not screaming, Ranting. but he was just, yeah, he was like, this yeah. is bull crap. And we're like, oh, that's cool. It's John Glenn. <laughs> but he was just going yeah. off on NASA. It was, a, it was wild, but it was really cool to have that opportunity. Yeah, for sure. I bet. Uh, what's your favorite thing about aviation? Um, my favorite thing is that it just opens a lot of doors and it gives you freedom to, you know, go wherever you want. I really, I truly like that. What's the worst flight you've ever flown? Worst flight I've ever flown? Maybe it could be like a terror, like something bad happened uh, mechanically, or you just made a stupid decision, or just like brings up bad memory. <laughs> yeah, it was um, on a previous uh, job I had. Um, I'm not going to say the company or not, but uh, we went through a pretty bad storm, kind of picking through the weather and going through hail. And uh, that was fun. a that was a bad time. Never doing that again. No. What is no. your favorite flight you've ever flown? Uh, favorite flight I've ever flown. Um, I'd say that that first uh, flight I did in the pits. That one sealed the deal for me. Least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Teterboro. <laughs> favorite airport you've ever landed at? Favorite airport. Um, I love Cedar Key in Florida. Is that the private airport that has like its own, uh, it's like a private community? Am I thinking of the same place or is this a different one? No. Um, well, I live in Spruce Creek, which is a private community. Um, but the one you're thinking about, no, it's, it's not. It's just, a, it's like an 1800 foot strip. Oh yeah, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. It's, yep. it's really fun to go into that. IFR or VFR? I already know the answer, but I'm asking anyways. Yeah. All day, every day, VFR. What's your favorite airport food to get? So let's say you're flying your beach jet. You are at an FBO and you have, I mean, maybe even catering. What's your go-to catering order or what are you going to go grab DoorDash or get food between your uh, being on the ground and your next flight? Um, just because of simplicity, it's typically Jimmy John's. I like it. I respect it. But it's not, it's not my, my first choice, though. It's just because I got 10 minutes to do a quick turn and I got to eat really quick. <laughs> Been there before. <laughs> yeah. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the city? Mountains all day, every day. Airbus or Boeing for you being a pilot, if you could fly one of them? Uh, man, that's, that's tough because I've never flown an Airbus. Um, but comparing both philosophies, I, I'm, I'm still a Boeing guy. What about sitting in the back as a passenger? Would you rather be on a 737 or a 320? 37 or a 320. Uh uh, probably at a uh, 320. Yeah. It's more comfortable. It is. I've never, I've never seen anyone grease a landing in a 737. <laughs> What's your the worst landing gear system? <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite airline livery? Uh, that's a tough one. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I like Emirates a lot. That's that's kind of sharp. Would you rather, so you're in the beach jet now, would you rather fly as many short trips as possible in one day or one super long leg, like as far as you could possibly fly legally? I hate quick turns, man. Um, and doing a lot of them in a day kind of burns you out. I think I'd rather do the long, one very long flight in a day. I would agree. I am with that. Yeah. There's a lot going on when we land. There's more, it's not just that uh, we're done and check out or go hang out in the FBO. Oh, I know. Especially like, when you don't have an APU. Oh, and, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So it gets a little bit more complicated there. So yeah. 
What's the hardest check ride you ever had? Uh, hardest check ride I've ever had, definitely CFI. More so than the double line where you only did in three days. Yeah, it <laughs> was crazy. The uh, my oral was my CFI oral was almost five hours. Yeah, with uh, two one-hour breaks. Yeah, not including the one-hour breaks. Just the whole thing was almost five hours. I feel like I get to the point where, like, look, dude, I've answered so many questions. Like, give it to me right now. Do I pass or do I fail? I'm done. Like, ask me one more question. If I get it right, I pass. If I don't, then I fail. Like, come on. <laughs> I know. What's the biggest win of your career so far? Biggest win of my career? Um, I don't know if it's not really part of my career, but the whole Culver thing and graduating with the highest rank was uh, was a big one for me. Um, but, you know, overall, um, I think, uh, getting first place at the, uh, the regional, um, contest during, uh, flying intermediate was, was a big one as well. During the regional series, I, I should say. If you have one, what's the biggest regret of your career? Something you wish either you, you could do over and have a second chance or maybe something that you wish you never even did in the first place. I think what I would have done differently would be to get my CFI sooner. Would you rather sit in the back of a CRJ 200 or ERJ or Ember 145? Man, is there a difference? <laughs> <laughs> they both suck. Correct answer. Yeah. Finally, someone said the right answer. I will never ask that question ever again. <laughs> would you rather fly a Piper or Cessna? And this is like small GA aircraft. Um, so I learned how to fly in a Cherokee. And... Um, I've always, I always kind of preferred low wing, so I would, you know, I would go with a Piper Cherokee versus like a Cessna 172. 141 training or 61 training? If you do it all again, or maybe if you were to recommend to someone a certain type of training, what would you recommend? Uh, it depends. Are you looking to do it for, you know, a professional pilot or just for fun? I mean, that kind of answers the question there too. So it's very specific on who it is, right? Yeah. Um, overall, if you're trying to do it professionally, I would go 141 route. Last one. If you were to get right. two business class tickets to anywhere in the world, you could choose whatever airline you wanted. What would you choose? Um, well, it would be between uh, Singapore and um, Emirates. I just, I want to fly in a 380 one day before we don't have them anymore. Good thing they brought them back. There's kind of a resurgence right now of which ones are left. So you got a couple more years. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Um, but I want to do that. I I flew on a triple seven for the first time like a month ago. Believe it or not, I was on. Uh, a, I've only been on a triple seven once. I think it was like from LA to Chicago or something small like that. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I was on. A, I was able to fly in a seven forty seven a freighter while I was working when I was doing freight. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I've never been on seven forty seven. Yeah. Probably never will. So, oh well. <laughs> oh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, all the all the jump seats were first class seats. So that's awesome. That was yeah. Well, hey, that's all the questions. Actually, I lied. I have one more question for you, but I, I really appreciate you coming on. I was excited to have you on and kind of share your mindset about aviation because I feel like it's forgotten to have fun in aviation a lot of times. And it's important to remember that aviation is supposed to be fun and you don't have to chase 
uh, heavy metal. You can still have fun, make money and enjoy your life and not be an airline pilot, which is kind of Absolutely. the whole thing I wanted to, to preach about when I started this podcast is just that there's so many different avenues to have fun and have a good life in aviation. But my last question is someone comes up to you, they listen to this, they send you a DM and they just want kind of three tips for success in a career. It doesn't have to be specific to flying, but just like mentality or how to navigate this space. What would you recommend in like three, four, five, I don't know, however many tips you'd want to give them. Um, just in flying in general or aerobatics, uh, flying in general. I say the first thing would be to just kind of make sure that that's what you want to pursue and that's what you want to do. And that would be my first, uh, my first tip. The second uh, tip I would give would be if you start, make sure you finish. Um, don't take breaks if, if you don't have to, um, because when you do that and you stop flying, then you lose proficiency and you're just wasting time and money. Um, and then the other thing I would say, and this is kind of, you know, weird, but, um, if it's, if you're doing it and it's not fun anymore, you know, don't keep doing it, find something else to do, uh, because there's so many other things you can do. And it just, it's to me, you, you have to have fun and I'll, I'll keep doing this until I just don't have fun anymore. I love it. Hey man, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm looking forward to releasing this. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. And that's a wrap of episode 198 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Shout out to Alan for coming on the podcast. It was awesome talking to him and teaching me how to say his name because, you know, I am terrible with names. But even if you hope you enjoyed it, uh, force everyone to subscribe to this podcast. You know, all your family is right there with you right now. Take their phones, run away, hide in a closet, subscribe, download it. And who knows, maybe you'll have something more to talk about this Christmas and Thanksgiving because they want to be pilots. So you're welcome. But I hope you enjoy the podcast. Leave a review, subscribe, follow, check out Pilots Coffee. Have a good one.